Well, we are just so delighted that you are with us today, gathering to celebrate a moment in history where death was defeated, where hope and joy were given to all, and literally the world was turned upside down 2,000 years ago. We're gathered together as a family, some seated here in in pews, some at home seated in chairs and, and sofas and couches, but we're gathered to celebrate our church family on this incredible day in history. And whether you're guests with us today or, or a regular attender, we almost feel like our church is a place where we're gathered around the table, enjoying one another, sharing stories with one another, interacting with one another. And have you ever noticed how we are really good at noticing the familiar? I mean, I bet you you've sat at the table with a lot of people over the years, coaches and parents and grandparents, and maybe you've got big plans today to have a, an Easter lunch or Easter dinner with everyone. And I bet you that you can notice the idiosyncrasies and the patterns of all the people at the table if you've sat with them long enough, right? I mean, for me, I know that my brother growing up, he's always going to crack a joke whenever there's kind of family tension going on. If we go out for pizza, my brother's going to pretend when he was a kid that he's allergic to Parmesan cheese. And I, of course, as the older brother, have to purposely put it up to his nose to try and prove that he was lying to us all. It's my dad. I know every time we're gathered at the table, he's going to ask everyone for a story from the last week. We're going to tell stories together. I could also recognize my dad's sneeze anywhere. Achoo! Loud enough to wake up the neighborhood, but one sneeze and it's gone. My mom is always going to ask how you're feeling, going to ask about your inner world. And if my mom sneezes, it sounds like a choo-choo train. Choo-choo-choo-choo-choo-choo, it always sounds like. Maybe it's the way you'd sit across the, the table at the cafeteria from a coach, and his face would always get red when he talked about this next game is the most important one. Or a teacher who would always get on this rabbit trail, and you're like, how are we going to get back to the main topic? And he always said, moving from the ridiculous to the sublime. That was his transition. Or maybe it was the way grandma always says that same phrase, do you need another helping? I think I do need another helping of pumpkin pie. We recognize and notice the familiar around the table. You think, well, Chad, what does this have to do with Easter? Well, in the Easter account, we're going to find out that Jesus was, res- he was rejected at the cross. He was raised at the tomb, but he will not be recognized by the people who know him best until they're sitting around the table and they notice some of his old patterns. They notice some of those personal connections that you only know with the people you sit with and eat with and know personally. Because God wants to have a personal connection with all of you. He knows this last week, your highest highs and your lowest lows. He knows what you're worried about, what you're struggling with. He knows what you're celebrating this week. And he invites you to the table to experience that with you. So let's go on an exploration together through the journey of Easter. And my hopes is that you will be able to recognize a God who knows you so personally and so intimately. Because he recognizes you. Let's start at the cross. Jesus was rejected at the cross. 
See, the message of Christianity is that God was in a whole other world than ours. And, and he came through the door of the incarnation. He came in a manger to come to dwell with us, to find us, to seek us out, to tell us what really mattered. There was a whole other world without betrayal, without being stabbed in the back. There was a whole other world with no crying and tears. He came into our world for us. And yet, in his final hours, he was rejected on a cross. And rejected by almost everyone. The same crowd that said, Hosanna, Hosanna. A few days later said, crucify him, crucify him. His best friend denied him. His treasurer stabbed him in the back and turned him into authorities. All his disciples scattered when things got tough. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected. To have people stab you in the back. And yet there at the cross is a few people who are still with him. One of the people at the foot of the cross was his mother, Mary. There stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother Mary, and his mother's sister. Jesus' aunt was there. Family was there with him at the cross. But also Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. That's a lot of Marys. Can you imagine that, that dinner table? Pass the butter, Mary. You know, five people turn. Which Mary do you need? And Jesus looks at John, one of his best friends, and says, hey, take care of my mom. And mom, let John take care of you. But for the most part, he was rejected. And the cross is a representation that even God turned his back on Jesus when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But why do we celebrate Easter? Why would we celebrate a guy who got hung on a cross like thousands of others? I mean, did this really happen? Is this just a modern Aesop's fables? Or did this really occur? If it did, what does it really even mean? You know, we have multiple scrolls, historic scrolls, that show that Jesus died and rose and showed himself to many, many people. Four different biographies that have been compiled together. One written by Matthew, one by Mark, one by Luke, one by John. Long before they were the Bible, they were individual scrolls that testified that this really happened. But outside of the Bible, there are other people who don't even believe in Jesus, God, or the Bible in the same way. And they testify that this really occurred in history. There's a Roman historian by the name of Tacitus. He's writing that during that time in the first century was a group of people called the Christians. And they got their name from a guy that they called the Christ. And he says, sure enough, in that first century, during the reign of Tiberius, they had been executed, this Christ, by Pontius Pilate. Testifying that this really happened. This isn't a story. This is a, a part of history. There's another writer during that time, a Jewish writer named Josephus, who wasn't a follower of Jesus. But he mentions Jesus several times, including Jesus' brother James. James, the brother of Jesus, who everyone called the Christ. So this isn't just a story, it's history, it's history. There's a modern scholar by the name of Bart, and he uh, is a rejecter and skeptic toward Christianity, but he's an absolute expert when it comes to the evidence for these biographies of Jesus. He says, here's what I can tell you. What is certain is that the earliest followers of Jesus believed 
that he died and came back in a body. And it was a body that had real bodily characteristics. It could be seen and touched. It had a voice that could be heard. Every single author who speaks of Jesus at any time, pagan, Jewish, or Christian, believed that he really lived. And the people who saw him, that he had really come back to life. So that's really what happened. And that's really what Jesus did. Why would God choose to come and be rejected on a cross? Like what a weird way to save the world. I'm reading a story right now about a man in history named Zvi, Z-V-I. He was living in the 1930s and 40s, and it was during the time of the Nazis and and the Holocaust. And he got, his parents ripped from him. He and many other preteens and teens had their parents taken by the Nazis, and they were put in Warsaw, Germany, in the Warsaw Ghetto, where they were put behind barbed wire and basically starved to death to death in this small city. Well, Zvi and many others, because they had lost their parents and wanted to be reunited with their parents, they had to find a way in to come and find. They heard their parents were starving. How do I get to those who can't provide for themselves what they need? So Zvi and his friends chose to crawl through the sewer. And they made their way through the sewer and came up through the manhole searching for their lost parents. And they found their parents were starving, so they went back through that sewer and got food and supplies and brought it back to them. I mean, it's one thing in Shawshank Redemption, right, to crawl through the sewer to get to freedom, but to crawl through the sewer to get the people in bondage? Who does that? Why would you do that? Except to find what was lost, to be reunited with family, And to provide for those who can't provide for themselves. And that is what the cross is about. That God came from his world and he crawled through the sewer of human hatred and human rejection because of you and me. He wanted to be reunited with you and family. To be reconnected with us. To provide for us. The solution for death. The hope and courage we need in facing uncertainty. Jesus was rejected at the cross to reunite with you and I. But then he was raised at the tomb. He's raised at the tomb a couple days later, unbeknownst to everyone, even though he predicted it. What happened here? And walking away from the tomb are a group of friends, his disciples. And as they're walking along, they're trying to figure out what this means. They knew there was resurrection at the end of time maybe, but not here and now. And I thought he was the Messiah who's supposed to be the king. And they're debating the questions and the evidence. And what about this? And what about that? As they're walking away from the tomb, a stranger comes up behind them and says, Hey, what are you guys talking about? He's like, what do you mean we're talking about? This is the Super Bowl event of the history. Two million people, it's recorded, were in Jerusalem at the time. Everyone knows somebody who saw somebody who saw the risen Jesus. Everyone's talking about it in Jerusalem. He turns to the stranger and says, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem that doesn't know what things we're talking about? And the stranger says, huh, what things? And they were so obsessed with the questions and the doubts and the wonderings, they didn't maybe look him in the eye. They didn't see the smirk on his face. You see, we as the readers know 
that that stranger is Jesus. He's talking to them here and now, and they don't even recognize him. What things? And they say, well, uh, they, they came and they found the tomb, and there was no body in the tomb. And, and when we arrived there, the uh, women had told us that they had found the, the, the tomb empty. We didn't believe them, so we came and checked it out, and sure enough, it was empty, just as the women had said. And they're now explaining to Jesus what happened, but they don't recognize him. Now notice the detail here, just as the women had said. Now that may not strike you. Because of Christianity's esteeming of men and women equally, we're not used to such a chauvinistic or patriarchal time when this book was written. See, in the first century, the chauvinism of the day is that women were not considered to have a voice worthy of giving testimony in a trial of of law, according to the Jewish culture. The Greeks and Romans very much saw women as property. There is no way you would ever make up a story about resurrection and have your main witnesses be women unless it was true. You wouldn't make up a story this way to that audience in the first century that was so chauvinistic. They told the story because this is what really happens. In fact, there's a skeptic of Christianity, a Greek writing in the first century named Celsius. And he rejects Christianity because he's such a chauvinist. He says, but who really saw this resurrection? A bunch of hysterical women. As you admit, perhaps one other person, deluded by his sorcery or else wrenched with grief at his failure, they hallucinate him rising from the dead as a bunch of wishful thinking. And notice he's rejecting the account because of his chauvinism, along with other things. See, the Bible records these events because they happen exactly as they were were told. Well, as they're just debating all these things, they continue walking along the road to a little place called Emmaus. And on the road to Emmaus, they're still walking with this stranger for seven miles and they're not going to recognize him. He pulls out the Bible and begins to show them evidence of their Bible written hundreds of years in advance and specific predictions that went back 1,500 years to Moses. See, the Messiah was going to die. I never noticed that. Look, look at the evidence. The Messiah was going to raise from the dead, according to David, 1,000 B.C. Oh, yeah, I didn't notice that. And as God is giving them evidence of what he had done and what he had predicted. They're starting to be convinced. And they come to this little town called Emmaus. And on the road to Emmaus, that word may not mean a lot to you. It didn't mean a lot to me. But in the Jewish world, one of the most significant battles in history, about 150 B.C., was the Battle of Emmaus. It was like the Revolutionary War to the Jews And Emmaus was a word that immediately triggered a time when the Maccabees were just about got wiped out, a genocide of all the Jewish people from the Greeks and the Seleucids. And sure enough, in a miracle, God saved his people from death and started a revolution of freedom for the country. So to say walking to Emmaus would be like me saying walking to Yorktown or walking to Trenton. We would immediately think of the revolution, the freedoms we experienced because the world changed for us 200 years ago. And Jesus is saying, we're walking to Emmaus because I'm going to start a revolution of love and generosity. I'm going to esteem women and men 
as I have. I'm going to turn the Roman caste system upside down. No longer is there going to be the valuable or the rich and not valuable or the poor, the valuable or the powerful, the not valuable or the less powerful. No, everyone is valuable in my eyes. And because I've defeated death, doctors are going to go run to those in need, suffering with the black plague. Because they know Jesus defeated death, there will be people caring for the poor, doctors caring for those who are hurting in a way that Romans had never seen before because of this revolution. People loving their enemy, caring for people who believed in different things than they did because of this revolution. We've been doing that as a church for the last month. People we don't know in Ukraine, we've gathered together these yellow bags. We've sent goods they need, imperishables they need in our partnership with Matthew 25 Ministries. People we don't know, strangers, but because they cannot provide for themselves, we have been sending goods to them. The truck pulled up this week and took all the stuff we've been gathering as a church to send it to Ukraine to those in war-torn areas. Because if Jesus crawled through the sewer to give us what we needed, why would we not give to other people what they need? In fact, our partner, Matthew 25, it comes from a little teaching of Jesus in the Bible. Where Jesus says, whatever you've done unto the least of these, you've done unto me. When you serve people and give to people and love people, it's a way that you're loving and giving to me. And that simple idea will literally turn the world upside down. However, after a seven-mile hike, guess what? They still don't recognize him. Not through the cross and not through the tomb and not through a seven-mile Bible study. No, no, he's recognized at the table. You see, he was going to continue on past Emmaus. But they said, why don't you turn aside and abide with us and have a meal with us and sit down with us? Well, Jesus wanted to go on, but he said, all right, I'll sit down. And he pulled up to the table, and they're going to have a little meal together. As they're seated at the mealtime, this stranger they've been walking with took a piece of bread. He blessed it. Oh, creator of heaven, thank you for this bread we're about to eat. And then he broke it. And then he gave it to his disciples. And it says immediately their eyes were opened. Why? The Bible study didn't do it. The walking with the guy who was back from the dead didn't do it. Why would this moment of breaking the bread be the thing that opened their eyes? Because we notice the things that are personal. And we notice the things that are familiar. This pattern took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it. They had seen this a hundred times, like you could pick out your brother or your dad, or your neighbor or your teacher. He had done this a hundred times around the table. There was one time Jesus fed 5,000 people, and this was the pattern. He took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. Did he always break it the same way? Maybe he always broke it in thirds or always broke it in fourths. I don't know. But they did. They immediately recognized this. In fact, just a a few days earlier at Passover, Jesus at Passover took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples. And immediately they knew 
It's Jesus. It's him. We've been walking with him the whole time. But it was the personal little pattern that let them recognize their friend and savior. See, I think God wants us to recognize the God who already recognizes you. He knows your patterns. He knows your worries. He knows your habits. He knows your idiosyncrasies. And he invites you to the table with him, to dine with him, to have a personal relationship, to laugh together, to enjoy each other's company together. That's what he's inviting us into for Easter. I remember um, one of the last Easter's we had with my wife's grandfather. He had developed Alzheimer's, and because of that, he no longer recognized us a lot of the time. He didn't recognize his granddaughter, my wife, his kids. And yet we still recognized him and all his love and his patterns. Every time we'd gather together to have a family meal, he'd say, let's pray. And he'd pray these long, like, five-minute prayers because some people at the table were religious, some people weren't, and he was trying to convert all of us. And he would just pray every theological nuance you can imagine for about three minutes before we could finally eat. But it was very heartfelt. And in those last years when he didn't recognize us, there were moments at a meal where his finger would go up in the air. And he suddenly would say, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God, and dwelt among us. And he would recite the entire first chapter of the biography of Jesus written by John that he had committed to memory. Because he was trusting Jesus' resurrection, that when he died, he would get a brand new body and a brand new mind to be fully restored. Sometimes it's funny things that we recognize. We'd sit at the table and my dad, <laughs> he always had a fly swatter in his hand during the summer. 222, 223, 224. You guys are leaving the screen door open. I have killed 235 flies today, he'd say. And my mom would say, Ross, please don't kill flies over the dinner table. We're about to eat. <laughs> right? It's personal. You recognize things that are personal. God wants you to recognize a God who already recognizes you. Maybe that means recognizing your need for forgiveness. That he was rejected for you, your need for adoption. Maybe it's your need for evidence. You've never thought of Christianity as history. And you've never looked at the evidence that it could be true. And maybe your need for forgiveness is saying, God, I want to check into this this Easter. Or maybe it's your need for something personal. You've had religion, you've had ritual, but you've never had a personal relationship with God that feels like hanging out at the dinner table together. What would it look like for you to dine with God? To have that kind of relationship with him? I was reading the story of Bubba Watson. He got the green jacket at the Masters in 2012 and 2014. He said, you know, when you compete at that level, you begin to define yourself by what you've succeeded or what you've done. It's easy to lose perspective. But when I began a personal relationship with Jesus and daily reading the Bible to get his perspective on life, it helped me to remind myself that my accomplishments are a piece of my life, but they're not who I am. 
and to keep marriage and family and my soul in check by realizing the God of the universe died for me, loves me, and wants to meet with me daily to interact with me. God's inviting you to the table this Easter. In the same way you might invite a friend. And these folks up on stage are not just band members, they're friends of mine. Some friends I've been with for over almost 20 years, like my buddy Kenny. How do you see Kenny playing up here? It's like me inviting him to the table. Kenny, join us. We're just hanging out. We're telling stories. You remember that last Easter win? Or you remember that, that favorite moment when you used to play at Cheeseburger Paradise? It just, you're just telling stories together, right? Jesus is saying the same thing to you. In fact, John writes this letter, the very last letter of the Bible. And he says, Behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone opens the door, I will come in. I'm not going to force my way in. I'm not going to push my way in. But if you open the door, I will come in and I will dine with you. I will sit and have a meal with you. I will reside in your heart. That's all Jesus is asking for this Easter. He crawled through the sewer for us. He rose from the dead to defeat death for us. But what he really wants is to dwell among us, to live in and with us. So maybe if you want to respond to God in that way, you can do it through a simple prayer. And for me, it's helpful to, to close my eyes and to fold my hands, but for you, it may not be. Whatever is helpful, but just let's talk to God for a moment. And maybe you say, Father, thank you for coming through that door. Thank you for being rejected for me. Thank you for defeating death for us all. God, I invite you into my heart because I want to know you. Or maybe you've known him for a while and you just want to say, God, I want to know you more. I want to get back to a personal connection with you. Father, we do want to know you. We do thank you for everything you've done for us. Amen.